Hi, I'm Busarata Frata, and you're listening to In Praise of the Margin, a podcast where we rethink hegemonic knowledge production practices through the politics of space, writing, and research, beyond the divisions and bounds of north and south, margins and centers. My guest today is Lee Patel, who is an interdisciplinary researcher, an educator, writer, and a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on both the ways schooling delivers inequities and how education can be a tool for liberation. She's a highly sought-after speaker and well-regarded scholar across the fields of education, ethnic studies, critical higher education studies, and literacy. She authored many books, including Decolonizing Educational Research, From Ownership to Answerability, published by Routledge in 2015, and No Study Without Struggle, Confronting Settler Colonialism in Higher Education, published by Beacon Press in 2021. I want to start our chat with Niki Giovanni's words, where she said, if now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we'll get to it. And your writing looks at what this truth means in the context of settler colonialism and the role that formal education and Western-centric universities occupy in the settler colonial structures. You're an academic, but you're also an educator who is active outside of university. I want to know how do you navigate these binaries of who is outside the academy and who's inside, and do you consider one of those sides to be holding more truth than the other? Nikki Giovanni is the perfect place to begin, um, particularly because of, as you quoted, if now is not a good time, I don't know when we'll get to it. And that statement has been true for centuries, millennia. And what she is doing is really asking people to reckon with now is a time. Now has always been the time. It will always be the time in the future to reckon with what harms and violence have been done in the name of racial capitalism, settler colonialism. There's been, as I know, all of the listeners of your podcast know and you know, that's been the game that's been the routine, the exercises to practice, if you will. And it's gotten very good at that. And yet, that is not the totality of people's experiences. And it's not the totality of always ongoing struggles for freedom. When I think about that and the narrative or thinking about being of the academy, in the academy. So I have a very ambiguous relationship with the academy because it. I have health coverage. I'll just say it like that. I have health coverage. I'm able to take care of my mother in her elder years. That's a very big deal in the United States, where the project of stratification means that if you don't have private health insurance, good luck. If your parent is aging, which oftentimes is quite a long process, similar to when babies and toddlers and children are growing up, it involves a lot and it needs all of you. So the academy is not built that way to support that because one, in the United States, it was created for land-owning white men. That echoes into the present. That echoes into who is seen as having an authority, who is seen to know. So my relationship is a little bit ambivalent. I don't want to reform a university. I think that's 
incremental change that is always going to kind of collapse. Um, Charles Payne has a wonderful book about this very topic in education specifically that's entitled So Much Reform, So Little Change. So we can get so busy with reforming this and that, and it ends up being sort of cosmetic, if you mm-hmm. will. So I, I keep an ambivalent relationship to the academy. I am grateful to be able to learn and study hard with my students and really discuss, okay, social justice for what, as an example. So I'm very grateful for that, but it's an ambivalent relationship, definitely. And these false narratives that you brought up, yes, in the United States, higher education is, it's very difficult or it's rare that a politician running for office doesn't mention something about education, either their own education and how it helped them to ascend and live the American dream or education and how we can make this more feasible in President Obama's tenure. It was like, everybody goes to college, which is, I don't think, the right idea. And then we layer on how much we've monetized and commodified learning. And learning actually is, I think, an uncomfortable word for me there. We've commodified and credentialized taking courses and being told like, okay, now you know this. When you may not know this at all, you may have just done some courses and gotten the credential and the credit, and you might not know that. So college is not for everybody, but yet somehow we forced it to be so at the same time of really ratcheting up tuition costs. And those tuition dollars go to two primary places. One is administrator salary and two is facilities. Facilities meaning brand new gym on campus or rock climbing wall. Things that kind of beautify or make attractive, whether it's a suburban campus, urban campus, it, it there's a lot of money poured into that. So this false narrative that higher education is the way that one can have upward social mobility is very much being tested at this time mm-hmm. and really has always been. There's lots of statistics that tell us when people do get their college degrees, they do tend to secure more solid jobs and income. But when we disaggregate it according to race and gender and being able to count with gender past just one and two, being able to think about gender in a broad expanse, then we see when Black people are attending universities and complete their degrees, that does not so easily lead to a job that erases all of their student debt loan. So those false narratives really do some work. And I think the most dangerous harm in there is that unless people organize or get together, even just more simply get together and talk about it, a person thinks like, well, this is just the way it is. And I have mm-hmm. to deal with that. It gets normalized. And that's quite dangerous. You also asked me where I am on the inside and the outside, but I would say Mm -hmm. that I am in relation with higher education, but I try really hard not to be of higher education, which is, I don't have to try super hard. It's very easy. I just pay attention to the people who are in my life who make knowledge and are actively doing that with each other. And not for the sake of showing a credential or a microcredit or look at all the things that I've read. They're just interested in stories and knowledge and and disagreement. 
and contesting with each other. And so that's that's where I find myself. That that's my inside. And then in terms of the academy, I am outside of it in part for me to be able to do better work, what I think is better work. If I completely aligned myself with the academy, I would be trading in my the ways that I've been raised through education for liberation, mm-hmm. which prioritizes youth leadership and youth radicalization and prioritizes listening to people. So if I were Mm -hmm. to be in the academy, I would be in direct contradiction to all of those values. Here's the thing that I I just will never let go of. I love teaching. I love it. I love learning. Absolutely adore it. So I just refuse to let these places say that they're about learning because A, they're not. And and B, this is this is the beauty of a classroom space. So when there's been a dramatic, well, they're all dramatic, but a dramatic act of violence on people, usually black, brown people, queer, we talk about it in class and we think about what led to this and how I maintain that inside, outside, kind of looping in and looping out. The inside is like, there are resources here. We get to study hard with each other. We get to read hard. We're in praxis with each other. Also, sometimes there's abilities to move money around. And that's really important. It's really important. You know, sometimes when I'm asked to do a talk or if I have a grant, how can I get this money into the hands of students? Because I don't need it in that way. But they do. I think of it more as like kind of skating in and out, like skating. Oh, what's this about? Okay, cool, cool, cool. I'll sign up for that and give you a grant proposal. And then my work is to redistribute resources into the hands of people from which that was extracted. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it is this distribution of resources that can foster learning with each other as a liberatory practice instead of learning only to receive a degree. Yes. Yes, and this is something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore speaks to much more eloquently than I do. Mm -hmm. But we read not to run down the street and say, look what I read, look what I read, look what I read. Yeah, We, We read, and even better, we read with each other so we understand the conditions of our lives. We understand conjunctural analyses, like so the conditions of our lives. We read to be able to know and and actually unknow, unlearn. We read to find ourselves in community with other people. Within the context of higher education, people have been getting together for a long, long time and reading together, be that printed text, audio, visual, many different modalities. Higher education doesn't have the dibs on that. It doesn't have like, oh, this is where you get to do that. People do that everywhere. I feel like that's very important in disabusing ourselves from the idea that knowledge is knowledge because it sits behind a paywall. You also mentioned that you're reluctant to referring to yourself as a researcher. So I'm curious, how do you define research and how does it differ from learning to you? It's such a beautiful question, Bushra. I really appreciate that. I think that there are many things that I've learned to do, many skill sets that I've been able to build that are very useful in creating knowledge in revisiting things that have happened in the past. That researcher part stands pretty firmly, but 
as a researcher or as a person who's supposed to be a researcher, I'm a researcher in the sense that I am constantly listening to people. I'm always trying to bring people together, but I don't need necessarily to tell their stories to other people. Sometimes I do with their permission. And particularly if I think it can move the needle in our understanding that some people are bequeathed humanity and some are not. And so Mm -hmm. those are worthwhile things to share. That's the building knowledge together. I have like a small little anecdote. When I was working on this book that came out with the title of Youth Held at the Border, The Politics of Inclusion in the United States and really should have been The Politics of Exclusion. When I was working on that book, I had been spending a lot of time in a high school that was an all-migrant high school. So some of the students had government documentation for them to be in the United States. Many, many students did not. There was also an aspect of students coming and going because they were going back to their home country and then coming back. I look at that as a place where like, okay, I've been here for like, you know, many, many years. I've attended, oh gosh, I was invited into so many homes and drank such strong coffee and ate such very, very sweet things in, at those times. Even if I don't want a sweet thing, I eat the sweet thing and mm-hmm. I drink very strong coffee because it's a, it's a form of welcoming. It's, it's very precious. So when I think about that and the ways that universities can be leveraged for the redistribution of goods, that's an example for me of how do we how do we do this? How do we support the people? And we, I say, meaning academics, how do we support the people from whose hands not only have things been taken, but what they've received in exchange is criminalization. So when I was starting to write that, first I just wrote down really amazing moments or really interesting moments or dynamic moments. I started working on a book and I went back and I'm still in contact with all of these people there. And I went back to them and said, do you want to, do you want to write part of this with me? Do you want to see what I'm writing as I go along? One of those young people said, oh no, miss, that's your book. We don't want that. I'm going to write my own book someday. And everybody else nodded. And I thought that was just so beautiful. Like, yeah, you do this. We trust you to do this. And we actually wouldn't go about it the way you're doing it. So you do that and we trust you and we'll do our own thing. I love this. And it's these kind of stories that show how much we can learn through generosity and tenderness. And that learning is about receiving the offerings with gratitude instead of extracting, stealing and decentering the knowledge holders or even worse, framing them and speaking for them as an other. You know, for multiple reasons. I cannot speak for the other because anytime I do that, I reinstantiate that there is a center. You know, Toni yeah. Morrison reminds us all the time that we are we are the center. We are the center. We're not on the margins. We're not dispossessed. We're not cast aside. We are the center. Yes, and it's also important not to simplify the margin or reduce it to the definition of an oppressed group. And I often go back to Bell Hook's words on margins as sites of radical openness and resistance. It's not a space left to the side, but a space that holds multiple centers. And you mentioned Toni Morrison, and I thought about her interview with Yana Wend, where she said, I stood at the border, claimed it as central, and let the rest of the world move over to where I was. 
And I also thought about Ocean Vuong, who said during a public reading with poet Quan Berry that he's very skeptical of being called a marginalized writer. And when we say marginal, the question usually goes to whom? And for my next question, I would like to start by reading an excerpt from your book, No Study Without Struggle, where you say, Another common instantiation is the practice in which researchers seek access to communities to study them, publish about their problems therein, but the community members gain little to nothing in return and rarely fairly compensated for their time as research participants. I have heard the question, how do I gain access to communities from dozens of academics? As a child of migrants, I have often thought and sometimes asked, why should you have access? The question itself speaks of a sense of entitlement, at least one of expectation. So I'm really curious, how do you approach the topic of access and the politics of access in the classroom? One of the things that I experience teaching and I experience myself is just honoring how to be in good relation, how to be in good relation with people or people, ecosystems, non-human living beings, how to be in good relation has to come before and be stewarded throughout all kinds of knowledge-making projects. I turned to that quote as you were reading it. That's an absolute thing that happened. We had a retreat, which is really, you know, a word for a longer meeting all day. And people had a flip chart paper to write on and then there was challenges. And one of the challenges was gaining access to communities. I'm like, well, maybe they don't want you to have access to them. And Maybe the skills that you have as a researcher, for me, having the ethos of, I'd like to write about this. What do you think? What do you want to do? I won't write about the things you don't want me to write about. And I definitely won't write and lead with lots of pain. But that's more nuanced and more detailed than access. How do I get access? You build relation. And if you don't build relation, you shouldn't have access. Especially in the times in which you and I are talking Education has been all but completely privatized. There are so few public spaces so that when researchers are applying for grants, that grant is going to end in three to five years. And then what? You're just going to leave? You're not going to be in contact anymore? This is not just for the study. You're going to become part of people's lives if you show up, if you listen. They will come to know you. You don't get to go ghost after that. What guides your teaching practice and how do you carve a path for fugitive learning in the classroom? I have a couple very firm anchors for any course that I'm teaching. It will absolutely focus on power and flows of power and power not just being something that we are under the heel of, but also how we build power and that agency. And the second thing that may not sound so related is there is poetry in every single one of my classes. I can't think of a class or course or discipline or program where poetry couldn't exist. You know, at this particular time of the rise of global totalitarianism, we need poetry so badly. And I, I find that that's really helpful in working with graduate students, um, specifically doctoral students that at a certain point, they've been so inundated with academic writing, but it is possible to have poetry in that academic writing. It is more than possible to do that. In terms of solidarity, I ask my students, like there's a, there's a couple things I ask of them. I tell them, I'll be here the whole time. 
It's going to be hard. It's going to be a little rough, but I'll be here the whole time. I draw on the work of activist poet Darnell Moore, and he talks about all the lies that we've been told. We've been told all these lies about, well, if you work hard and you are a good person and you have a good set of ethics, you'll do well. That's a very lovely um, discourse in the United States. And I tell my students, I am going to disabuse you of that notion because it's not true. There are some singular examples, but those singular examples actually function to make that lie stand. It gives it more stability. And I also, in solidarity, I, along with the people that I'm working with, be it classrooms, be it study groups, I'm always wanting us to think about categories much more carefully. So can we get rid of categories, demographic categories? No, not right away. But it's important for us to know that categories were constructed for quite specific reasons. Race was constructed in order to deliver racism. Sexuality being defined as straight or gay, as gesturing back a few decades, that was defined in order to maintain control over who was straight and who was gay and who could be married, which was a lesser, it's a lesser talked about topic with settler colonialism, but Kim Talbert does amazing work in this area. So I tell every class that I'm with, I'm going to ask you to break up with a lot of lies. And I know that these lies are part of how you understand yourself. And so I'm asking you to do a very big thing that's scary. Like you have two grips with your two hands, but they're like the ring of uh, rows and you can move from one to the other to the other. I'm asking you to let go of one of the handholds and you can't quite see, feel where that next grip is. That's what I'm asking you to do. Because that's a lot of times what it feels like to break up with white supremacy, to break up with heteropatriarchy. To build solidarity, I, I think part of what has to be in there is understanding the distinct yet very connected ways that oppression is delivered to different groups of people. My last question to you, Lee, how can we pursue liberation without centering our lives around struggle? And since you mentioned the importance of poetry and human relations and the interconnectedness, is there a poem or a poet that guides you? You know, I think a lot of what I would like people to know is that struggle, movement, organizing is hard. And it's particularly hard because most of us are in contexts that are defined by racial capitalism. So there can never be enough doing. There's always doing, 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 making widgets, 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 widgets. So struggle, you know, there are some people who use the phrase the beautiful struggle. It is a beautiful struggle. When we look at the Black radical tradition, and I think about the teachings of Bob Moses, this is a hundred years game, if not more. So I won't see that in my lifetime, the, that being abolition and freedom and feminism across the board. I won't see decoloniality just step into structure, into formal structure. In thinking about that and, and the word struggle, that was something I, I thought a lot about with this book because I know that the struggle attempts to have a pretty common association with like, I'm tired of struggling. I don't want to struggle. And yet struggle also means saying no and not giving consent, not wanting to be the debtor to the relationship. I'm going to struggle to not do that. I'm not going to let you put me into massive debt. 
I'm not going to let you have me be the spokesperson for all people who have slightly more melanin in their bodies. I'm not going to do that. That's struggle. And that's also freedom and agency. And it becomes more and more powerful when people organize together. I understand that association with the word struggle. Because sometimes it also is part of the feeling that feels like, I just want to rest. I don't want to have to fight today. And some people have to fight more every single day. Black women, migrant women, brown women, indigenous women. It's a constant fight all the time. But in that struggle is also where we sharpen our analysis. What are the conditions of my life? How did this start? Where did it come from? What is changeable? So on my birthday every year, I read aloud this poem by Lucille Clifton. It's entitled, Won't You Celebrate With Me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up. Here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And that to me carries the ethos of how I try to be creating spaces and organizing in teaching or at least making people aware of these lies that they've been told. I want them to know that there is something trying to kill Black and Brown Indigenous women specifically every day. At this larger project of colonialism, it's failed. It has failed. It will continue to fail. Has it taken lives, left some bruises? Absolutely. But it has not succeeded. <laughs> For it to succeed, we would need to not care about anybody else except ourselves. Thank you so much, Lee, for coming on the podcast. Your scholarship has taught me a lot. I'm really grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for your patience with me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram or Twitter or at bushra at imprayseofthemargin.com. Stay tuned and see you next time.